Hi, I'm No Kairos, a guy from the future, 2053 to be precise. I'm able to send these recordings to you in your time because of advances we've made in the quantum sciences. Ironically, these quantum advances put all of us, you in your time and me in mine, in a bit of a superposition pickle. We can move toward achieving the limits of human potential, or we can let it all fade away and go back to living like animals in caves. Our choices determine the outcome, and our lives are a series of small choices that may seem trivial. Um, they impact the world in ways that we're just only beginning to understand. What we do know is that it's critical that we make choices that allow us to continue making choices. We need to jealously guard our free agency, because if we don't, someone else will make those decisions for us, and that someone else doesn't always have your best interest, or anyone's best interest in mind. I'm speaking to you from the Republic of Biarica, a small but beautiful chunk of land in South America. We fled the West years ago because of the erosion of our personal liberties. In this recording, I'd like to tell you how we came to acquire the land where we now live. Now, I've touched a bit on the state of the world after the Cascadia earthquake and the Grom epidemic, but the United States and the rest of the world were actually in pretty rough shape before those events. And before I get into the sequence that led us to purchasing the land and moving to South America, I'd like to give you some insight into the state of the world and how that got the ball rolling on Biarica. I think I'll start with a personal story that'll highlight a lot of what was going on at that time. I was working for a company that developed what's called middleware. Middleware is essentially a piece of software that communicates with other software. Sounds kind of boring, right? Um, well, it is, but bear with me here for a minute. The company I worked for built software that helped translate human brain signals into information and commands that can be understood by computers. At the time, we were a medium-sized startup, about uh, 100 employees, and we were by no means profitable. We had raised four separate rounds of venture capital funding, and our technology had matured to the point where we were getting attention from larger companies. People started throwing around terms like unicorn and rocket ship, uh, there was a lot of excitement within the company and a lot of pressure to keep that momentum going. Around the same time, the loons in Congress decided that the American people were being exploited by their corporate overlords and it was time to take action. Now, this was during a time of economic trouble and the aim was to create more jobs and improve the quality of life for all Americans. So they mandated a shortened work week of 20 hours, 25 hours for management, with some flexibility for hourly workers. Their logic was that the shortened work week would force employers to hire more people, thus thinning the ranks of the unemployed. Overall, pay would remain the same and employers would be forced to fund some additional health and wellness benefits. So as you can imagine, this was a very polarizing decision. Employees thought it was a great idea, but leaders of the companies that employed them were horrified. Costs were already out of control, uh, employers were on the hook for health care and a bunch of other federally mandated wellness programs. Companies had already eliminated a lot of lower level jobs through technology and automation, and this latest mandate intensified the animosity between the government and private industry. Anyway, our company was already low on cash and was putting a lot of productivity pressure on employees like me. Our company, like many others, simply ignored the new 20-hour mandate and continued you know, continued working our 80-hour weeks. 
and I was content with the status quo. I had stock options, so I had some incentive to work hard toward our goals. Uh, most of my colleagues, uh, coworkers were in the same boat, but of course some weren't. So within a month or two, somebody blew the whistle on our operations. So we arrived at the office one Tuesday morning to find several of our executives being let out of the building in handcuffs. And my first thought was that it was fraud or embezzlement, something that's pretty common in the startup world. But that wasn't the case. We were raided for a long list of labor violations. So for the next three days, we had to sit through a series of interviews and all hands meetings with representatives of various federal law enforcement and labor officials. So I was pissed. I had work to do, but they had to shut down our corporate networks and our computing infrastructure while they conducted their investigation. They grilled me about my work and the supposed abuse that I had suffered. I tried to say as little as possible and was mostly uncooperative. And I got lumped into the subset of non-cooperative employees and we were herded into more interviews and sessions where they went back and forth between pumping us for information and trying to get us to believe that we had been abused. And our executive team remained in custody for about 10 days and our operations were interrupted for about two weeks, but a lot of damage had been done. Our company was put on probation, which required on-site and electronic monitoring of our operations. I had to leave the office by 2 p.m. each day, and I was unable to access our systems remotely from home after checking out. Worse yet, we ended up on a federal shame list of labor violators. So word spread around social media that we were a sweatshop, and that we exploited employees, and that scared off a lot of potential clients and employees. Being on probation also made it extremely difficult to do business with government entities, which was one of our major targets. It put a huge dent in our brand. So we found ways to get around these restrictions. We used our personal computers, VPNs, and phones to conduct meetings after hours. Uh, we did our daily stand-up meetings, our sprint reviews, we did all that at home. We had zero meetings during formal working hours. Everyone was heads down on their work during that time. So I was bitching and moaning to my dad about this one night. I knew he was having his own challenges complying with the new labor regulations. He was an executive at a mid-sized technology consulting company, uh, which is an industry notorious for working long hours. He sat, listened to me gripe and moan for a few minutes except I could tell he wasn't really listening. He was just kind of staring right through me. His mind was obviously elsewhere. So I stopped uh, mid-rant and asked him if everything was okay. He kind of snapped out of it and I could tell I had his attention again. Yeah, I'm listening, he said. Nah, you were, you were a million miles away, Dad. What's going on? He sat up in his chair, took a deep breath and slumped over, his elbows on his knees. I don't think we're gonna get it back. Uh, and he kept talking. The world that my grandpa fought for in World War II, I think it's gone. So before I had a chance to ask more questions, he abruptly stood up and said, give me just a minute, and headed toward his office. I could hear him rummaging around in his desk, and he came back to the living room with a couple pages of sloppy, handwritten notes. He sat back down on his chair, shuffled his notes, and then looked at me. You're going to think I'm completely nuts, but I want to let you in on something I've been working on for the past couple years. And that's the night he read me in on the plans for Bierica, 
Of course, it wasn't called Bierica at that time. The name of the concept, I guess you can call it, was the Restoration. He started out by reading through a sloppy list of bullet points. Here's what we're dealing with right now. First bullet point, our politicians are involved in perpetual partisan wars. They're loyal to their parties, not the citizens. We don't have uh, representative government at all. I nodded my head and he continued, next bullet point. Most tax revenue is spent servicing debt and funding an ever-increasing portfolio of entitlements. Okay, nothing I didn't know. Next bullet point. Our system of education is underfunded and ineffective. Yep. Next bullet point. Our personal freedoms are being sacrificed in the name of security, yet most anywhere you live is unsafe to raise a family. Okay. Last bullet point. And as you've seen, we're being penalized for hard work. And he continues on, we're uh, breeding generations of do-nothings and know-nothings who will make these problems worse and who will continue to elect whatever idiot promises them the most freebies. He paused briefly and asked, am I crazy here? And at that point, I did have the thought that my dad was starting to lose it. The way the conversation was going, I was kind of expecting him to announce that he was joining a militia to take the country back or something. And then he explained the basic concept and framework of the restoration project. As he explained, my fears that he was going crazy were put to sleep, but it all sounded way idealistic and a bit naive. And here's uh, some of the cliff notes on his explanation. Basically, the restoration project consisted of a group of business, industrial, and scientific leaders in the United States and Western Europe. All were fairly well-educated, wealthy, and absolutely fed up with the onerous politics and red tape that was preventing them from achieving their goals in whatever field or objective they were passionate about. They had come to the conclusion that the world was broken, that it was mired in incompetence, apathy, and bureaucracy, and was beyond repair. Rather than start a series of revolutions in countries that were already paranoid, political powder kegs, they simply wanted to start from scratch. They wanted to establish a new nation, start fresh an environment that could help humans reach their full potential. Again, this all sounded idealistic to me, so I asked some practical questions. You're going to need some real estate to start a new country. How are you going to get it? Dad explained that they had identified a number of different locations throughout the world and we're taking a look at these locations now. The restoration group had come to an agreement that they wanted a location in a temperate part of the world, a place that could support ag agriculture, had clean water supplies, and some critical natural resources. Also, the preferred location would be in a relatively stable part of the world, low risk of geopolitical, religious, or ethnic conflict. And that, that part made me laugh. In this particular time, it was very hard to find anywhere on the globe devoid of these problems, and he agreed. They had narrowed their search down to a number of locations in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, one was in South Australia, uh, another was the South Island of New Zealand, and then they were looking at the Pampas and Patagonia regions of Argentina. Dad made another trip to his office and came back with his laptop. He spent a couple minutes logging into a strange web app that I'd never seen before, several layer, layers of security and authentication. And the app was a curious combination of content management, work management, and social media. Dad had a queue of tasks that he'd been assigned, and it was clear that he was collaborating with a number of other individuals on these tasks. 
He quickly navigated away from that view and into the content section. He pulled up a couple of map files and showed me the specific regions they were considering. And to the side of the maps were a series of links, tasks, milestones, status indicators, things like that. Now it was my turn to stare blankly. Uh, Dad went through his series of maps and at a high level explained the strengths and weaknesses of each location and where the group was at in their evaluation. But I wasn't really listening. This app he was working with and all the information it contained and all the collaborators that seemed to be involved, all of this was much more mature and elaborate than I thought it was. It dawned on me that he was dead serious about this restoration project and it was much bigger than I thought it was. My next question for him was, so where are you getting the money for the land? Crypto and gold, he said, and then he dropped another bombshell. I knew he'd been into cryptocurrencies for a long time. He had been passionate about crypto and blockchain technology since I was a small child. He gave me a single Bitcoin for my 10th birthday. It was worth about $6,000 back then. I was thrilled, but didn't totally understand what it was. I pretty much forgot about it until high school when the value went to about $50,000 and then I jumped in head first. I got into crypto trading, put a series of trading bots in place and multiplied that gift substantially. I thought I had a decent crypto portfolio and I did, but dad beat me in spades. As I mentioned, my dad got into crypto fairly early on. He revealed that he had just over 12,000 bitcoins stashed away. He'd bought most of those early for pennies, and over the year he'd held on to them, never selling. He held as the value spiked dramatically, and then he held during the many catastrophic drops. So my dad was a billionaire. He was wearing a pair of shredded old Vans shoes that he mowed the lawn in. He was wearing the same old comfy college sweatshirt that he'd owned for years. And then he pulled out a small black rectangle out of his pocket and tossed it playfully in the air. Yep, he said, all right here. Holy shit, Dad. You have all your crypto on that stick? Nope, just the Bitcoin. The rest of my crypto is staked with the project. The rest of the crypto, I asked. Yeah, I bought into Ethereum and other coins as well. When Bitcoin went through all those forks, I got a bunch of coins through that, and I staked all those coins in the restoration project, but I kept the Bitcoin. I'm still in awe that my dad is tossing billions of dollars around so nonchalantly. Put that damn stick down, I demand. That night was pretty bizarre. It had started out with me helping my dad drag the garbage cans to the curb. It ended with me discovering that my dad's a billionaire and he's planning to go Dutch on a new country with a bunch of other middle-aged crypto nerds. And actually, the night ended with a, an invitation. So what do you think? Do you want in? It was a lot to digest. I had to think about it. After the initial shock wore off, and that certainly took a few weeks, I started peppering dad with questions. I wanted to know how he had gotten involved with the project, who was in charge of it, and what our government and others thought about a large group of citizens planning to start a new country. Dad had learned about the restoration project at work. One of their consulting projects had started to go south and he had flown down to Atlanta to help straighten things out. While there, he met with a couple of the client's executives and his, in his words, they really hit it off. My dad is a pragmatic optimist. He'd listen intently to the complaints and gripes of the customers, take personal responsibility for those gripes, and he'd outline a remediation plan. The success of that plan would be contingent upon closing gaps in trust and communication, 
two elements he felt were critical to the success of any partnership or venture. This approach was disarming. Most people came to meetings like this loaded for bear. He'd absorbed the punishment, refusing to fire back or be defensive. But by the end of the meeting, reasonable people would realize their own shortcomings and would be committed to bridging those trust and communication gaps. Anyway, in the process of salvaging this particular project, a couple of the client's executives realized that they had found a kindred spirit in my father. They were all at lunch, bitching about politics and the tightening restrictions on business and personal freedoms. And one of the executives asked my father, well, how would you fix this? My father admitted that he believed the country was beyond fixing. They challenged him. You keep telling us that the majority of problems can be attributed to gaps in trust and communication. Do you really believe that? Of course I believe that, he said. But in our country, the trust and communication only flows in one direction. We're supposed to place absolute, unquestioning trust in our government. But with all these restrictions, regulations, and surveillance, it's obvious they don't trust us. On the communication side, they never shut up. But do any of us feel like we're being heard? He continued, I've seen this before in the consulting world. I've tried to salvage some of these relationships, but it never works. If both sides aren't committed to trust and communication, the marriage fails. In these cases, it's best to just wipe the slate clean and walk away. The two executives asked my dad to dinner that night and read him in on the restoration project, and he dove in head first. And frankly, so did I, eventually. I'm not as trusting as my father, which he likes to point out often. I had concerns that this was some kind of a cult or an elaborate fraud focused on separating us from our crypto. I got over that, staked some of my crypto, and they got me set up in the system and put my technical skills to work. So you might be wondering, how did an effort involving thousands of people making plans to establish a new country go unnoticed by the government? Uh, actually, our government was aware of the restoration project, as were most in the West. There were plenty of leaks, whistleblowers, etc. You know, people involved in the project got pissed off or disillusioned for various reasons. They informed the government and in some cases were able to submit documentation, images, etc. But the restoration portal, the system we used to communicate and collaborate on the project, was relatively secure. There were multiple layers of security, encryption, and tracking. Each element of information contained in the portal was tracked on a proprietary blockchain. So if documents or other elements were leaked, the leaker could be tracked down and isolated pretty quickly. And if you did uh, leak information and get locked out of the portal, you also lost any crypto assets you had staked. People were free to back out of the project as well. And if they did so, their crypto stake would be returned to them. But this is where things would get a bit shady. If you backed out and then started talking, the group would raise hell. They'd wipe your bank accounts, turn your, your employer against you, release embarrassing photos, things like that. There were definitely intelligence and counterintelligence operations within the group. I'll talk a bit about, more about that in a minute. But aside from a few bad eggs, most of their efforts were dedicated to preventing outside intrusion. Getting into the group was exclusively an invitation-only process where an insider had to stand up for you, uh, so there was no vetting of applications or anything like that. The last thing I'll add pertains to the governance of the group. There's no single leader or president, and the group is the only legislative branch. Decisions are made democratically. If you have a problem or idea, you submit it via the portal. 
Members of the group will first vote on whether your issue is a priority or of immediate importance. Uh, they'll be able to add more details, support, or maybe communicate that the issue has already been solved and direct you to appropriate resources. If the issue is marked as a priority, it goes to the general membership for debate and clarification and eventually for a yay-nay vote. For urgent needs that can't wait for the democratic process, there are other processes. I won't get into those much, but the group can be nimble when needed. On a side note, this pure democratic process carried over and became our process of government in Biarica. We have a president, but he has no executive powers. He, he carries out the will of our citizens who are all direct participants in the legislative process. So anyway, I, I spent the next 18 months working on tasks assigned to me by the group. I had plenty of time to work on these tasks due to the additional free time the government's labor restrictions put on my day job. My work with the restoration project was a welcome escape from the drama at my day job. Things weren't going well there. Our technology was maturing and we'd managed to sign on new clients despite the labor restrictions and cultural stigma, but we were bleeding cash and the frustration and pressure made for a toxic environment. But then out of the blue, the situation turned. We received a large contract from the Veterans Administration. We had developed technology that helped disabled people and amputees control prosthetic limbs neurally with their own brains. This contract was a surprise due to the fact that we'd been blacklisted from government business because of our unsavory labor practices. But disabled veterans and healthcare in general was a huge political hot button at that time, so we were removed from the naughty list. Our operations were also classified as necessary for the security and well-being of the country, so we became exempt from the 20-hour work week, uh, and we were back in business. The new contract and removal of restrictions catapulted our value in the eyes of investors. We went from cultural pariah to benevolent technology company of the people nearly overnight. Venture capital companies begged us to take their money, and we took it, nearly a billion dollars. We went on a hiring binge and we were able to resurrect some of the projects we had shit canned earlier due to the labor restrictions and lack of funds. It was good time. And then the Cascadia earthquake hit. I've already gone into quite a bit of detail on that event. Millions of dead, injured, and displaced people. The most heavily populated areas of Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia were devastated. Large areas of Northern California as well. The earthquake, tsunami, and the political and economic disasters that followed were the first of two huge sucker punches to hit the United States. But it was great for business. Those disasters generated a huge number of maimed and injured people that could benefit from our technology. The unrest following the Cascadia earthquake bred opportunities as well. The military and law enforcement became very interested in technology that made it easier for the brain to communicate with weapons and tools. This bothered me and many others in the company. I felt great about the work we were doing to help disabled veterans and amputees, but making it easier for cops and soldiers to use force against our own citizens, you know, I was conflicted at best. And those feelings were amplified when I was offered a promotion into our fledgling defense systems division. The money, perks, and autonomy that came with that promotion would have been spectacular. But the promotion had me on edge for a number of reasons, including what I have just mentioned. I didn't want to be involved in efforts to surveil and oppress my fellow citizens. The security clearance process and additional surveillance the position required scared me as well. 
it would be harder and more risky to perform work for the restoration project in this role. So I sought advice on the restoration portal. The group was as intrigued and conflicted as I was. We all considered ourselves to be patriots of our respective countries, but we were also directly involved in a plan to establish a new nation. Being on the inside would help us keep an eye on our government and gather intelligence that might be useful for our new nation. So I was advised to accept the promotion and transition all of my existing restoration work to other members. I was told that I was being transferred to the intelligence work group within the portal and that I would receive further instructions. And the next time I logged into the portal, the only available option to me was an encrypted storage folder. Inside the storage folder was a single text file. I opened it. It was a short numbered list of instructions. Number one, you'll get a shipment of contact lenses each month. Number two, wear those lenses to work each day. Number three, do not log into the portal again until further notice. I closed the text file and the portal went blank. Over the next 14 months, I dove headlong into my new position. I managed a team of seven senior developers and we worked long hours to fulfill the ambitious requirements of each two-week sprint. I wore the contacts that were shipped to me by the restoration project and made sure that I paid particularly close attention during daily stand-ups and during sprint planning and sprint review meetings. I reviewed or at least looked at every document I could get my eyes on. I never knew what would be useful or interesting to my teammates at the restoration project. I figured they could filter out the garbage, but I knew there was uh, plenty of useful content. We were developing some seriously shady technology for the cops and military. Stuff like real-time visual lie detectors that cops could use in the field, you know, cops could interview an individual in the field and their body or helmet cams would pick up the video or auditory evidence that an individual was lying. Anyway, the fact that all of this was being recorded helped me justify my involvement in developing these types of technologies. It was during this time that I met my wife, Lori. I was spending some time volunteering and working at the refugee camp near Grantsville, Utah. My volunteer work mostly consisted of installing and maintaining wireless communication networks within the refugee camps. Unofficially, I used the camp as a test bed for some of the technologies we were developing at work and was giving the restoration project a view of it all. Lori thought I was a simple, altruistic volunteer and was pretty pissed off when I fessed up about everything I was doing in the camp years later. She understood why I did what I did, but I had definitely exploited some very vulnerable people. Uh, nearly two years after the Cascadia earthquake, I remember having the distinct impression that we were out of the woods from that disaster. Most of the people had left the refugee camps, and there seemed to be a new sense of optimism. Like, as a country, we just survived a huge sucker punch. It had knocked us back on our heels and really hurt, but it also knocked some sense into us. I remember thinking, man, if we can survive that, we can survive just about anything. Boy, was I wrong. Um, and here came the second sucker punch, the Grom epidemic. I talked about that in depth as well earlier, so I won't go too deep, but here's the gist. The Russians and Chinese felt threatened by the progress the Western world was making in the quantum sciences. They were on the outside looking in and knew that the West had had them beat in this area, so they stole an experimental drug from a European pharma startup tweaked the formula, and then used organized crime syndicates to distribute the drug throughout the Western world. This drug was called Grom, which is the Russian word for thunder. 
Unlike other drugs, it didn't make people violent or disorderly, so it wasn't initially a huge priority for law enforcement um, or the DEA or customs, but Grom caused problems when you stopped using it. Within 24 to 48 hours after going off the drug, users' brains would misfire and go into flight mode. They'd essentially run themselves to death or run into a wall, off a cliff, into traffic, things like that. Grum quickly became a priority for the government and their first reaction was to dis disrupt the supply of the drug. That obviously caused problems and hundreds of thousands of people died before the government wised up and allowed the drug to flow again. At that point, the government implemented heavy sanctions against Russia and China, who reacted by immediately and completely stopping the supply of the drug. In roughly one week, uh, in a one-week period, between 20 and 50 million people died terrible and agonizing deaths. There was enough grum stashed throughout the country to stave off a mass withdrawal for several months, but users came to a social media-enabled mass conclusion that it was time to go. And that was the sucker punch that knocked us out. Even the most cynical members of the Restoration Project couldn't have imagined an event like this. Over the past two years, roughly a sixth of the population of our country had been wiped out. Those who remained were shell-shocked and scarred. We had just held a memorial service for my brother-in-law and his girlfriend, um, who had succumbed to Grom when my father pulled me aside. He had received a message for me through the Restoration Portal. It essentially said, take the money and run. During the Grom epidemic, our company had quickly repurposed some of the technology they developed to help heroin and meth addicts. They had profiled the brain activity of uh, Grom addicts and had come up with a rudimentary treatment procedure. The treatment plan involved implanting a small piece of technology inside the brain which would regulate brain activity and keep the patient from entering the final mortal phase of withdrawal. The procedure was invasive and risky, but it worked. That's all Wall Street needed to hear. The markets were already collapsing due to the loss of life and capital that Grom caused. Our company was already making IPO preparations and those efforts were expedited. Long story short, I woke up one morning to discover that the deal had closed, that my options had been converted and my bank account had more digits than I could comprehend. Not as well off as my father, obviously, but I was in good shape. I took the project's advice and resigned that morning. Working in a pre-IPO company is stressful enough, but post-IPO might be worse. I had no desire to be a slave for the shareholder quarter after quarter. I turned down the attractive three-year retention package I was offered and walked out the door. I sold my shares, converted the proceeds to crypto, and flew Lori to Hawaii for a little getaway. When we returned, my father had received another message for me via the portal. He told me I could log in again. I hadn't been on the portal in a couple years and was excited to log in. A lot had changed, a lot more content, and seemed to be a lot more people involved. There were a couple messages in my inbox. One stated that I had been reassigned within the intelligence group and that I should hang tight and await further instructions. The next message dated a couple days later instructed me to apply for a particular job at the U.S. Department of Energy. Ugh, government work. Going from a chaotic pre-IPO environment to the bureaucratic snail's pace rubber stamp world of the government would definitely be a shock to the system. And then I read the job description. They were looking for somebody with experience leading a cognitive interface team in the Quantum Development Division or QDD. The job description was intentionally vague, but reading between the lines I could tell 
that I was the guy for the job. And working in the quantum field, that was the arms race of my time and still is. I'd always wanted that on my resume and I knew I could help the restoration serving in that role. I applied and went through a series of interviews with various stakeholders within the QDD. I had everything they were looking for on the cognitive interface side, but zero experience in the quantum sciences. But my security clearances from my previous employer were still valid and matched those required for the position. So they ultimately decided to hire me despite my lack of quantum experience. I met Adam within a couple months of starting at the uh, DOE. Adam's company had been nationalized by the consortium of Western nations who were collaborating on quantum technologies. Adam was a Swedish national, an expert in quantum cryptography and security. Adam was not a member of the restoration project, but he'd overheard me bitching and moaning about the bureaucracy and lack of transparency among divisions one day in the cafeteria. He researched my background online and noticed who my previous employer was. Uh, he followed me out on a daily lunch run one day and made contact. We hit it off and eventually he fessed up about his stocking and felt that I might be a kindred spirit, that I might share some of his concerns. Namely, that the government was nationalizing private quantum companies and stealing their technologies, my previous employer included. Now, there's much more to this story and I'll cover uh, Adam's story in depth on a future recording. But essentially, I did share Adam's concerns, so much so that I introduced him to my father who read Adam in on the restoration project. Adam ended up stealing the quantum keys and handing them over to the restoration project. Those keys are the only reason our new nation of Biarica was and is allowed to exist. Anyway, my former employer was nationalized and their technology was combined with that of several others to create the Kairos network. At first glance, Kairos is a miracle. It puts every piece of technology you'd ever need to use inside your head. You don't need a laptop, phone, or anything else. You think it and Kairos does it. But most users quickly come to the conclusion that life outside Kairos sucks. They'd rather spend all their time immersed in a fantasy world. Playing golf on Pebble Beach and partying in Tokyo certainly beats mopping floors in an elementary school while you think about your dead family members. So a lot of people chose to check themselves into government-run lounge works facilities where they could live in their fantasy worlds indefinitely. The launch of the Kairos network was the final straw for the restoration project. The instant popularity of voluntary government-sponsored virtual slavery erased any hope we may have had that the country would turn around. People weren't concerned about personal achievement. They wanted perpetual leisure and comfort. They felt that they had suffered and sacrificed enough. It was time for a permanent escape. And it was time for those of us who believed otherwise to escape as well. While I'd been off the grid, the restoration group had eliminated the sites in Australia and New Zealand. Neither nation was keen on surrendering sovereignty on portions of, portions of their islands. Both nations were also closely allied to the United States and other Western nations. Our search area had narrowed to a number of locations in South America. The group was not thrilled with the political and economic instability in South America, but those forces were deemed more manageable than locations closer to the global powers. The group was intently focused on a couple of locations in Argentina, the Pampas west of Buenos Aires and south in Patagonia. Argentina desperately needed money. They'd been in dire straits for decades and many of their social support systems had failed. Infrastructure was crumbling and lawlessness prevailed. 
It had entered a cycle of third world level poverty and corruption long ago. Leadership changes were so frequent that we could never seem to get any momentum in our negotiations. When we thought we had found the guy, he'd bring in five other guys whose palms needed to be greased, and they'd bring in five more. Then there'd be an election or an assassination, and the whole process would start over. It was discouraging, but we started noticing a lot of communication back and forth between the Chileans and Chinese. We assigned some of our members in Chile to monitor the situation, and they relayed some startling news. China was trying to do the same thing in Chile that we were trying to do in Argentina. They saw the turmoil in South America as an opportunity, and they were trying to expand their territory and establish a presence in the Americas. They had proposed a deal to purchase uh, the regions of Araucanía, Los Rios, and Los Lagos in southern Chile, and Chile was taking them seriously. The sticky points in the deal were that China wanted all the citizens in those areas out of there. They wanted the natives to be relocated to other regions of the country. China had their own people to move in and they had no desire for any sort of cultural integration. The prospect of resettling more than 3 million inhabitants of those regions was intimidating and overwhelming to Chile. Chile was also concerned about its access to territory in the south, uh, south of the Chinese purchase. Though rugged and sparsely populated, there were plenty of natural resources, and Chile worried that the Chinese would limit access or just move in and squat on that territory. The mere fact that Chile was considering this offer was an opportunity for the group. The group quickly put a pitch together and arranged a meeting with the Chilean representatives. We lowballed the Chinese offer, but offered to give Chilean citizens in the area the option and incentives to stay. We offered free trade and agreed not to complicate travel to the southern regions of the country. We also agreed not to invade, exploit, or squat on their holdings in Patagonia. We made sure that we hit all the hiccups uh, offered in the Chinese deal, but the Chileans were wary. They knew China had money, but we were just a group of faceless, rich Norteños. The Chileans decided to use our offer as leverage for the Chinese. We were horrified at the time, but it turned events in our favor. The Chinese were surprised, threatened, and offended. They were aware of the restoration group, but saw it as some kind of idealistic group of Western wackos. They accused Chile of manufacturing an offer. China responded with a counteroffer, which was essentially a fraction of their original offer price, along with a longer list of demands, one of which was unrestricted access to the natural resources of southern Chile and Patagonia. That caught the Argentines' attention. Patagonia had been a source of contention between Chile and Argentina for over a century. Now the Chileans were going to allow China unlimited access to the area. It caught the attention of the rest of the world as well. The United States and its allies knew what we were trying to do, but this new shift toward Chile was a gap in their intelligence. They did not want China to have a beachhead in the Americas, but they also didn't want a bunch of capital fleeing from the United States. The group sent an urgent message that members needed to transfer their assets out of the United States or wherever they were from as soon as possible. They provided a number of countries and institutions that would help us do so. My father and I had done this long ago. Our assets were mostly crypto with appropriate amounts stored in custody of the restoration group. Some members of the group weren't so lucky. Their assets were frozen and they had to endure some hard times. Anyway, this counteroffer caused an international shitstorm, and we knew we had to act quickly before the world powers came together with some type of plan C for the Chileans. 
We made our own counteroffer. The price and terms originally offered if the deal closes within 48 hours. And if you try to use this counteroffer to get better terms from the Chinese or the US, the deal is revoked permanently. 12 hours later, we received a surprise counteroffer. Argentina and Chile had been talking behind our backs. Argentina wanted in on the deal. Were we interested? They were willing to sell the province of Nuquén, which bordered the Chilean provinces, we were uh, regions we were purchasing. Nuquén had natural resources that might interest us, and Argentina would provide concessions allowing free trade, travel, and portage to the Atlantic Ocean. The two countries disclosed that the deal would cede Chilean land at the tip of South America to Argentina. They requested that the deadline be extended another 12 hours so that all parties could absorb and analyze the deal. We agreed to the extension and the group got to work analyzing the deal. The price tag had gone up by 80%. Could we cover it? Was there anything in New Ken that we wanted or needed? We looked back at our previous analysis and discovered that Nuquén had some natural resources that indeed might be useful. There were some rare earths and petroleum reserves that might be useful. Access to the Atlantic and formal relations with Argentina would also be good. So we made the decision to counteroffer yet again. We'd be willing to do the deal at 50% premium instead of the 80% that they had proposed. We felt it was a fair offer based on our hurried evaluation and assumed that Chile and Argentina were padding the deal just a bit. That offer was also slightly over our proven reserves. We had to scramble to verify that we had enough liquid capital to close the deal. Members of the group, including my dad and I, had to transfer in some additional crypto to get over the line to make up for some of the pledged capital that had been frozen. Chile and Argentina strung us along for nearly the entire overtime period. This was all happening so quickly that none of the parties involved really had time to ask all the questions that needed to be asked or to smooth out all the fine details. We received conditional acceptance of the deal about 20 minutes before the deadline. Acceptance was conditional because of the sheer number of fine details that were yet to be decided. Things like water rights, individual property rights, trade agreements, those types of things sometimes take years to settle among established nations. We were just a group of people and our constitution was still in draft form. Our existing purchase agreement already contained an arbitration clause. All of the fine details were to be ironed out in Switzerland, abiding by Swiss arbitration rules. The condition in the conditional acceptance was really just putting more meat and definition around the arbitration process, essentially adding about six more pages of legal mumbo jumbo to the purchase agreement. And we were fine with that condition. We hoped, maybe naively, that arbitration in neutral Switzerland would provide some level of protection against the international shitstorm that this transaction would cause. But finally, we had our land. We sent word of our acceptance to our Latin American partners. The purchase agreement was signed by the presidents of Chile and Argentina. Our signature read E Pluribus Unum, which we probably recognize if you're in the United States. It means from many, one. The document was signed digitally and required approval of two-thirds of the Restoration Group's membership to generate. We had about 98% approval, missing only a few who were unavailable in the hospital, etc. We remitted payment the following day. Payment was made in a combination of cryptocurrency and precious metals. We sent a total of seven crypto transactions, the first being a small test amount, and the precious metals were transferred digitally as well. 
The metals themselves were held in an offshore location, and that transaction consisted of transferring the title to the trust established by Chile and Argentina. Unfortunately, we didn't really have the opportunity to celebrate. Shit immediately hit the fan. I can't reveal the total amount of the transaction, but as you can imagine, it was pretty big. It was impossible to hide six huge crypto transactions, and the movement of such huge amounts of money caused markets to freak out. All of the markets. People couldn't decide whether this was good or bad news, so volatility might be an understatement. The United States and the West were concerned about the large transactions, specifically the large amount of capital fleeing the country. But as usual, they were a bit late to the party. That money had fled years ago. China freaked out. They've always been pretty good about throwing their weight around and it expected Chile to cave to their threats. Now they were deeply offended and promised unpleasant consequences. Oh, and all of South America freaked out. Chile and Argentina had somehow quietly managed to get their people and the government on board with the transaction. But to the general public, it had all been rumors and conspiracy theories. Now it was real. People panicked. For once, the world was united. The general message to the restoration group was that there is no way you're moving in, and they did just about everything they could to keep us from going there. They labeled the restoration group as a terrorist organization and intensified efforts to freeze our assets. They went on social media witch hunts and published inaccurate membership lists, which caused problems for some members of our group and for some completely innocent people as well. Looking on the bright side, the poor treatment we experienced definitely helped stave off any buyer's remorse within the group. We had anticipated many of these challenges and had plans to deal with them, but we weren't completely prepared for the scale and intensity of the backlash. Looking back uh, a bit, we were in a situation similar to the founding fathers of the United States. We had signed our own Declaration of Independence. That was the easy part. Now we had to deal with the consequences of our actions and put in the hard work to fulfill the promises we'd made to each other. And I'll talk about the adversity that we faced in moving to Villarica in my next recording. Looking back on the past couple of decades, it's been difficult, but it's been worth the trouble, and it was the right choice for me in my time. Will it be the right choice for you in your time? That's unclear. The choices and decisions you make can have a big impact on the direction of the world. Your time is different from mine, and you still have an opportunity to steer things in a different direction. I want to make it clear I love the United States. I was born and raised there, and my ancestors sacrificed a lot to build that country. But somehow, somewhere, the train went off the tracks, and the country I love fell off the bridge and burned. My solution was to jump off the train before it burned. You might see that as cowardice, that I ran away instead of dedicating my life to changing things in my own country. And you might be right. But that's all irrelevant now. In your time, there are two paths in front of you. The most attractive path takes a meandering route that slowly strips away your free agency. It's a one-way dead-end street. The second path is steep, treacherous, and poorly maintained. As time goes on, you're not even sure where it leads, but you always have decisions. You're the master of your own destiny. You might decide, like we did, to veer off that treacherous path and build your own road. Obviously, I can't fault you for that decision, but make sure that that option is available. What can you do right now? Make decisions that allow you to continue making decisions. You're living in the good old days, but your tribal politics, casual drug use, and immersive technologies are toxic. They feed your delusions and send you down the wrong path. 
embrace and defend what you have here and now. Good luck.